Turn with me to the book of Hosea and chapter 1. Last week, uh, we started the Minor Prophets with something of a twofold introduction. The first part of our sermon, and really the long intro, was an intro to the 12 as a whole. We talked about the 12 Minor Prophets, those last 12 books in our English Old Testament, and they are the Minor Prophets, not because they're less important or less significant, they are Minor Prophets because they are shorter. And then you read through Hosea and you say, this is longer than Daniel, one of the major prophets, what's going on? And you say, I didn't make the distinction, this is just where they are. So Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, minor because of the length of writing. And uh, these 12 prophets write over a long span, uh, roughly 500 years of Israel's history. Remember, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided in two, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south different kings in the north and the south, different military struggles in the north and the south, different places of worship in the north and the south, and different prophets that write to the north and the south. We know that Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern ten kingdoms. 150 years later, Babylon comes in and wipes out Judah and the south, and the people are in exile. For 70 years, God's people are completely removed from the land, after which they slowly begin to go back. They rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple, and the people are brought back to the place that God had promised them, but some things are never the same. Worship is never the same. The Ark of the Covenant never returns to the temple. Leadership is never the same. There is never again a descendant of David that sits on the throne over Israel. The people are always, in one sense or another, led by foreign rulers. And it's in that span that the minor prophets write from the divided kingdom through the exile to the restoration-ish of God's people. And even though they're separated by time and geography uh, and specific situation, the minor prophets write with four key themes in mind. Over and over and over, we see four things come up. That God is sovereign, that God is holy, that God is just, and that God is merciful. We don't have to go very far even today in Hosea chapter 1. We'll see those things play out. And as we opened up Hosea, we saw a very brief introduction to the book last week. We don't know much about the author. Really, other than what we're given in the first verse there, we know that Hosea uh, was the son of a man named... uh, Sorry. Hosea was the son of a man named Beery. I almost read Uzziah because I wasn't paying attention to where I was reading. We know that Hosea ministers to the northern kingdom. We know that Hosea's ministry spans about 40 years of ministry, and we know that Hosea in particular is called to one of the most graphic, one of the most vivid, one of the most heartbreaking pictures of what Israel's rebellion against God will look like. And as we open up chapter 1 today, uh, we get an introduction to Hosea by going through the whole book in one chapter. Hosea, like several of the minor prophets, is somewhat cyclical. They'll come around and around and they'll say the same thing. And in Hosea chapter 1, he lays out what is happening over the entire book in one chapter. So that's where we'll be today. So if you're not there already, find your way to Hosea chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and kind of set the stage for where we're headed. Hosea chapter 1, this is what God's Word says. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went 
And he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we read through uh, prophets and pictures and uh, names and places that we're not as familiar with, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word because we don't understand these because we know history. We don't understand these because we know our biblical timeline. The only reason that we're able to comprehend spiritual truth is because you change our hearts. Because that is what the Spirit does. The Spirit enlightens and brings understanding. So Lord, we recognize that what we don't need is a better education. What we do need is to be totally dependent on you. So Lord, open our eyes. And as we see who you are, as we see what you've done, as we see what you've called us to, we ask that you would strengthen us for obedience, that you would make us able and willing to obey you. And Lord, once again, that's a work that only you can do. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we talk about the family unit, we're really talking about kind of the building block of society in general. Uh, Where families are strong, there's security, uh, there's stability, there's safety, and that bleeds out into the culture as a whole. And where families are weak, you have contention, you have strife, you have struggle, you have insecurity, you, you have all of these things. And at the heart of the family unit is marriage. Now, this is not to say that if you are not married or do not have a family, you are somehow less than or other. God's word makes it very, very clear that there's a, there are those who are called to singleness for the glory of God and for the good of the body of Christ. But the vast majority of people experience life within the context of marriage and then family. And how marriage is valued and approached and guarded determines the strength of the family and thereby determines the strength of, again, the culture and even a society in general. And I go through all of that because at the heart of the book of Hosea is a marriage. Two marriages, really. The first one is the physical, real marriage between a man named Hosea and a woman named Gomer. And the second is a covenant bond between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his people, pictured as the committed relationship between a husband and wife. In Hosea, we see the heartbreak of unfaithfulness. Played out in his life is this great drama between a faithful God and an unfaithful people. And if we don't get that, then we miss the purpose and the point, and really we miss the power of the book. Because we could look through it and we could search for kind of tidy theological themes and we could find that, but we miss the absolute gut punch that this is designed to be. Understanding that these are people, that marriage matters, that there is love and commitment that is broken, helps us to see more graphically and more vividly what sin is like. And so today we're going to look at all of chapter 1 in a single verse in chapter 2 that I think really goes along with chapter 1, and we're going to see the book in a chapter. And we're going to see it kind of in three venues and three really related promises. We're going to see a broken promise, and we're going to see a bitter promise given through the names of his children, and then we're going to see an unimaginably beautiful promise at the very end. Let's open that up and let's look first at kind of this broken promise that's given first in a picture. Because the first thing we see is a picture. If you look at verse 2, and I'm reading out of the NASB, by the way. I had somebody else last week. I switched up versions just for this for now. 
NASB, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. That's the foundational picture that the rest of the book grows out of. Now, when I say picture, again, I don't mean it in the sense of an allegory or a story. There are a number of commentators who see Hosea's marriage as something more along the lines of a parable. As Jesus told parables, they were stories that dealt with real themes and real items, but they weren't grounded in actual historical narrative. A sower went out to sow. It is not Joe the sower went out to sow on this day. It was a picture. When we come to the book of Hosea, it is a picture, a picture of the spiritual reality of Israel, but it is played out in a real life. Hosea is a real person. Uh, There is no sense where we would have an allegorical name for his father or for his wife or for his father-in-law. There are real people, real details. So this is an actual narrative that happens. The problem is, if these are real people, then we have a very real problem because God is going to ask Hosea to do the unthinkable. God is going to ask Hosea... If we rephrase our thinking, God is going to command Hosea to go. It's it's not if you would like to. It's not would you consider. It's go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Hosea, go and take a wife that is going to be unfaithful to you and have children. Build a family with and around a woman who you know will be unfaithful to you. We said that the first major theme of the minor prophets was God's sovereignty. And maybe in our minds we think that's the easy one. Yep, God is in control of everything. Here's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty asks a man to do something unimaginably difficult. God commands Hosea to do something that is going to bring him real pain to enter into a real marriage, to bind himself to a woman, to love her. And he does love her. Chapter 3 makes that very clear. And that's part of the reason some people can't see this as a historical narrative. And there's other minor disagreements here. Some people think that uh, Gomer was already living a a lifestyle that was unfaithful and uh, uh, adulterous that she was already a very particular kind of woman when he married her. Uh, Others see her as being um, pure and only after marriage, departing from that. Um, Both are acceptable, both are biblical. I happen to lean toward her violating the marriage covenant afterward. I think that gives a better picture of God's calling of Israel. But again, both of those are entirely possible and faithful. But he marries there. And the hard reality is this, that he marries her having every understanding of what kind of woman she is and what is going to happen. But what's the purpose in that? How could God put a faithful man like Hosea through something like that? Because look at what's being illustrated. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. The land means the people of the land. It's kind of this holistic way of talking about the people of Israel and their absolute and utter failure to remain faithful to God. Remember what we read at the beginning of the service today. In Exodus 19, they come out of Egypt. God has miraculously delivered them from their bondage to freedom and guided them toward a promised land. And at the foot of Sinai there, God says, I'm going to enter into a very specific covenant relationship with you. If you will do these things, then you will know my blessing. You will know what it is like to be my people. And what do the people say? We read it today. All that the Lord has said, we will do. 
God, when it comes to obedience, we're your people. And over and over and over, they prove that that is absolutely not true. We saw that they were supposed to worship him alone. We saw that in Leviticus 26 that we went through last week, that they were supposed to bring their offering at the right time in the right place through the right priests. They were supposed to love each other and care for each other under the law. And and above all, they were supposed to be a people who were free from idolatry. And yet above all, that was the sin they continually moved toward. They would still acknowledge God. They would still go on with their feasts and their festivals and their sacrifices. The minor prophets make that very, very clear. The problem was they would worship God right alongside the gods of all the nations around them. Yahweh, God, was one of many options. And so to correct that thinking, God gives them the picture of marriage. Because from the garden, from the very beginning, marriage has been designed as one man and one woman bound together to make one new thing. Wholly and completely committed. Nothing competing for the attention, for the affection, for the intimacy of the other. And God is pictured as the faithful husband. The one they were to worship and follow and everything else was supposed to be abandoned. Uh, The nations around them were characterized by their worship of many gods. Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be like a shining light in the middle of darkness, absolutely distinct from all the nations around them, and yet they proved to be no different. And God says it's like a woman who looks at her faithful husband, her committed husband, her dedicated husband, and says, you're not enough. And then who goes off to satisfy her lust with any other man she desires. And it's not just harlotry, As if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, it is flagrant harlotry. This is not quiet. This is not um, discreet. This is public. This is unthinking. This is careless. This is blatant. And that is meant to be uncomfortable. Don't try to explain or reason that away. Let that awkwardness, that uncomfortableness sink in and just kind of stir up your heart for a moment. Because here's the reality, to love anything more than God is to participate in that same kind of wickedness. And sin is very, very easy to justify. But that marriage, that's not the only picture that God is going to give. Out of this marriage are going to come children. And children are given names, and so often the names that we give our children mean something. Family names, familiar names, names of loved ones or close friends, names that have been passed down from generation to generation, and it's no different with his children. But now in the names of Hosea's children, we're actually given a bitter promise. Three bitter promises, really, but we move from a broken promise to the bitter promise of God's coming judgment. Because God is sovereign and because God is holy, God will also prove himself just and that sin must be dealt with. And the first promise that we see is a promise of defeat. Look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. We read through that, we move through it pretty quickly, usually because those names and those places don't mean much to us. They need to. 
We need to understand what history the prophet is drawing on so we can understand what he is pointing to here. Um, then we can kind of connect that to what's coming in the future. Uh, Jezreel is a fertile valley in the northern part of Israel. And if we come up on the next slide, that should look familiar. We went over that last week. Yellow in the south, those two tribes belonging to Judah. Blue in the north, those ten tribes. And that oval there, roughly where the valley of Jezreel is. And again, that still doesn't mean much to us, but if we zoom in on that and kind of look at a little bit more detail, that valley of Jezreel comes between Carmel, Megiddo, Jezreel, and Mount Tabor there. And some of those names maybe start to sound familiar to us. Carmel, we know that. That's where Elijah the prophet had that great uh, conflict with the prophets of Baal and completely decimated them as God showed himself faithful. We've heard of Megiddo, or if not Megiddo, maybe at least Armageddon. This is a critical area, a fortified city. You have major travel routes that go up through that area that then begin to branch off and go up to various places in the north. This is a a key area for the security of Israel. This is a key area for the production of food in Israel. This is an incredibly fertile place where things are still grown, things are still produced. And so now if you know that, we're going to go back in Israel's history. Back to a time when they were ruled over by a king named Ahab, a weak and wicked king who was only surpassed in his evil by his more brutal and vicious and evil wife Jezebel. And in that place, in that valley of Jezreel, there was a man named Naboth who had a vineyard, and Ahab wanted it. And so he approached Naboth, and Ahab said, I'll trade you, and Naboth said no. He said, then I'll buy it, and Naboth said no, and so Ahab pouted. And Jezebel's wife said, what are you pouting for? You're a king. Just do something about it. And ultimately, Ahab, through Jezebel, has Naboth killed, and he just takes possession of the vineyard. And God says, because of that, I'm going to wipe out your entire line. I will wipe out your sons. Your ruling line will come to an end. And years later, God uses a man named Jehu to accomplish that. Make the note of this. You can read that account in 2 Kings chapter 9 and chapter 10. Jehu is anointed king, and he's told to go and execute this vengeance on Ahab's line, that he is to do what God has told Ahab was coming. And so Jehu comes in his chariot, and he confronts Joram, a son of Ahab who's ruling Israel. And they meet on that very property where Naboth's vineyard was. And the king of Israel says, do you come in peace? And Jehu makes it very clear that he is not. And and that king of Israel turns in his chariot and he begins to flee. Jehu draws his bow and shoots an arrow through his heart, kills him. Has his body dumped in the vineyard that he took. He wipes out all of his male descendants. And there's some difficulty here because God commends Jehu for doing what he told him to do, but Jehu goes too far. Jehu not only kills all of Ahab's line, he kills all of Ahab's advisors, all of his generals, he kills all of his friends, he kills all of his family. Jehu kills the southern king, the king of Judah, as well. Jehu goes on to massacre whoever will solidify his power, and Jehu is no better a king than Ahab. He removes some of the idolatry, but he continues to encourage the people to worship in Dan and Bethel, those places where the Lord hadn't told them to worship. And so Jehu proves to be a wicked king who killed another wicked king. And God is just, and he deals with sin. 
And so the name of this child, Jezreel, looks back at that time in Israel's history and looks forward to the time when God is going to punish that, when he is going to put an end to that line. But it's not just the house of Jehu that's going to be judged. It's the whole kingdom of Israel that's going to come to an end. Because he says, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The bow is, of course, an instrument of warfare. It is one of the primary weapons of war. And to have a broken bow would mean to have no military power. And so this is looking forward to the time when Assyria is going to come in and utterly wipe out the northern kingdom. When there will be no more ability for Israel to fight back against their foreign invaders who are going to come. And so Jehu's sin will be punished, but all of Israel's sin will be punished. And the line of Jehu is going to come to an end, but so too is the whole kingdom of Israel. And remember, Hosea stands as the last prophet that will warn the northern kingdom before this destruction comes. And if you thought the name Jezreel was bad, then it only gets worse. Because we move from a promise of defeat to a promise of no mercy. Look at verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Now, there's something a little bit distinct there. It does not say that Gomer, Gomer bore Hosea a daughter. It just says she conceived again. And in that subtle difference, there might be an indication that it's not Hosea's child. By the time you get to the third child, the name is so distinct that it is likely not his child. Once again, we can't die on that hill, but there's an indication that her lifestyle has already begun to change. But she conceives, and she bears him a daughter, and this daughter's name is again full of meaning. Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer take pity on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. The name translates to just that, no mercy or no pity. That's a difficult thing to hear, because what do we know about God? He's a God of mercy. It was part of how he revealed himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord. Slow to anger and compassionate. We know that God takes pity on sinners. We know that God is love. Maybe above any other attribute of God, that's the one that our culture has latched onto, the idea that God is love. We hear it in any number of contexts. The God that I believe in is a God of love, and that God of love would never fill in the blank. That God of love would never punish people. That God of love would never judge, would never send anybody to hell because he is a God of love. We have to remember this. The love of God does not stand in contrast or in conflict with any of his other attributes. Love is not the defining attribute of God that everything else has to line up under. God is perfectly love at the very same time that he is perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly sovereign, perfectly complete in the fullness of all that he is. He's not pieced and parceled out with one part contending against the other. God is the perfection of all that he is. And God is saying that this people will no longer be shown pity or mercy. And it's not like rejecting a child that comes to you asking for help, asking for mercy. Uh, This is the sum total of 200 years of rebellion. 200 years of a divided kingdom. 200 years of wicked kings. 200 years of false worship. It is only by God's mercy, only through God's pity that Israel has existed this long at all. And now he says no more. For 200 years they have been warned. For 200 years they have had the opportunity to repent, to change, and to turn. For 200 years they have had the law that condemns what they're doing. They have had prophets sent to them to call them back. 
and that time is over. The people have not repented, the people have not obeyed, so the mercy is going to be cut off. But there's a distinction here. Look at verse 7. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. And I will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. I'm going to show no mercy to Israel, but I will show mercy to Judah. And what do we say? That's not fair. You can't do that. Please remember, first and foremost, that God is not entitled, no one is entitled to God's mercy. No one is entitled to God's pity. It is a gracious gift when he extends mercy to a sinful and rebellious people. But there were also distinctions in how these people functioned. There were times in the southern kingdom when the people would respond in faith and obedience. There were kings that called the people back to faith in God for their protection. Hezekiah being one of those kings that happens right around this time. There was none of that in Israel. And so God says because First of all, of his covenant promises to David, God will wipe out the line of Ahab. God will wipe out the line of Jehu. God has promised that he will not do the same with the line of David, even when those kings fail, because he's faithful, even when they're not. But he says, I'm going to spare Judah. And when that happens, it is going to be absolutely a work of the Lord. It's not going to be because they're stronger militarily. It's not going to be because they somehow have a better defense strategy. When I deliver them, you are going to know that it absolutely was me who did it. And once again, I would encourage you to read where this happens. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. When the king of Assyria comes and wipes out Israel, he doesn't stop with Israel. He moves down toward Judah. He takes away fortified cities from the coastal region up toward the lowlands there, and he's making a threat on Jerusalem. He sends messengers and he says to the people, uh, the king, and they say, you know, don't talk to us uh, so that the people on the wall understand. And the messenger says, no, no, no. I'm giving you the message so that everybody understands. You're done. Don't trust your king. Don't trust your God. Look at all the nations around you. Look at all their gods and see what the king of Assyria has done to them. And when Hezekiah hears this message, he goes to the Lord. Imperfect king, but he responds rightly. And in a single night, an angel of the Lord wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. And God delivers his people. See, when the prophets speak, we see these things played out in the history of God's people. And the king of Assyria is forced to return home. And there's still one child left to come with one additional bitter promise. And that is a promise of rejection. Look at verse 8. When she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That is the most fearful of all the promises. Defeat at Jezreel, military conquest, that's one thing. Receiving no mercy, that's worse. This is complete rejection. And this reaches all the way back to what we read at the foot of Mount Sinai there in Exodus 19.5. God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, if you will obey, you will be a special treasured possession. I own everything. You'll be different. You will have the opportunity to display me to the nation, to act like a kingdom of priests. 
but they did not obey. And this is not looking back to a specific act again. This is the sum total of Israel's rebellion. They decided they did not want Yahweh as their God. They would use him when he was convenient. The God of Israel could be one of many, or he could be the one and only, depending on what the situation called for. But God is holy. God does not share his glory. And as they determined that they would not call him their God, now he has determined that they are not called his people. This is a terrifying reality. To know that sin has this kind of consequence. To know that rejecting God leads to rejection by God. And as difficult as that is, we have to understand that this is not unfair. This is what justice looks like. When we read Hosea, we need to understand that the man who is speaking these promises is speaking from a place of brokenness and heartache. Hosea is called to say difficult things, and yet there are things that he has lived out firsthand. We have all experienced, in one context or another, what unfaithfulness does in a marriage. We've all seen, felt, heard of, either walked with someone or walked through it ourselves what adultery does. The brokenness, the anger, the heartbreak, the anguish that it brings along with it. Understand that Hosea spoke that message from personal experience. Every time he said his children's name, he was reminded of what was coming. It's meant to be painful and uncomfortable. Idolatry should not sit easily with us. And when we see it in that graphic of terms, we understand why God says enough. We understand why God says no more. This is not happening. It becomes easy to understand when we see how terrible sin is. Here's what's hard to understand. Why the book doesn't end there. The much harder thing to understand is that judgment is not the final word. Incredibly, there is a beautiful promise that wraps up the end of Hosea. And the first part of that promise is restoring the people. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of, Israel, of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. The people are going to be overcome and carried away, yet there's a contrast. Those names speak of a difficult reality, the reality of the rebellion of the people, and yet, but... However true that may be, there's a time coming where the people are going to be restored. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. I don't know when the last time you were at the beach was, but what a blessing to live in a place that is this close to the beach. And whenever you went to the beach last, I guarantee you, you brought home more of the beach than you intended to, didn't you? Whether it was in your car or in your clothing, you wound up with those grains of sand embedded somewhere. Why? Because there are so many of them. In one cup of sand, there's about two million grains, depending on kind of where you are in the world. So you imagine that over thousands of miles of shoreline, billions and billions of cups. And God says, that's what I'm going to make the people like. Those ones who are wiped out and decimated, I'm going to make them numerous again. And hopefully that idea of 
people in sand doesn't kind of come out of nowhere to you. Maybe that sounds familiar. And this is one of the things we need to understand about the minor prophets. The minor prophets don't preach or write in a vacuum. They write intentionally placing themselves in the trajectory of Israel's history. They look back to what has come and they ground themselves in the promises that God has already made and they look forward to what is coming. And in Genesis chapter 12, God made very re uh, remarkable promises to a man named Abraham. He said that he would bless him and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He said that he would give him and his descendants a very particular piece of land as their eternal inheritance. And he said that he would multiply him. That he would make him a great nation. And this is how God phrased it. Genesis 13, 16, I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth. Genesis 22, 17, I will greatly bless you. I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And that promise is reiterated to his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And when Jacob has a severe conflict with Esau, and Esau has every reason to kill Jacob, Jacob prays to God to remind him of certain things that God said. And he says uh, in Genesis 32, 12, Jacob says, For you said, Lord, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So as Hosea says that, he is picking up those same Abrahamic covenant promises and saying that God has not forgotten them, that he will remain faithful, that even though the people have failed, God will not. And that's amazing, but it goes on. Look at the rest of verse 10, because God is not only going to talk about a people, he is going to talk about them as a possession. The rest of verse 10 and it will come about in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Those people who are cut off and rejected are now going to be restored, not only in terms of being a physical numbered people, but in their being the possession called the people of God. This was an almost unimaginable mercy. Under the law, do you know what the penalty was for adultery? What was it? Death. Under the law, what was the penalty for idolatry? Do you know? It was death. And here you have an adulterous woman and an idolatrous people. And yet Hosea doesn't have Gomer put to death, and God will not see his people come to an end. There's a time coming when they will be restored, when they are going to be once again called his people. And not just his people, but sons of the living God, where they're not only possessed by him, but where their whole identity is wrapped up in being his people. And there's so much to say about when that happens and what that looks like. And that gets played out over and over again, not only in Hosea, but in the rest of the minor prophets. So we will expand upon it at that time. And we're going to close with verse 11, where we see an additional promise. God is going to multiply the people. God is going to make them his possession. And now he starts talking about a very particular place. Verse 11, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel are going to be gathered together, those two separate nations, yellow and blue on our map, north and south. They're going to be made one people again. We say, well, didn't that happen? After the exile in Babylon, when they came back, weren't they mixed? Weren't they one people once again? And... Yes, but only-ish. Because look at the rest of the context of that. It's not just that they're going to be in the same place at the same time. It's that they're absolutely united. They will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up on the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. It's not just a political union. It's a union behind one leader. The people all, for the first time in their history since Solomon, identify with one singular king. And that did not happen when they returned to the land. They were still under 
various empires that had dominion over them. This did not happen in 1948. Over this last year, if you watched Israel's election cycle, you know that they are not united behind any particular leader. This speaks to a time that is yet forward when they determine that they will follow after one head. And if you've been reading through Hosea every week, then chapter 3 gave you an indication of who that is. And if you haven't yet, then we'll get there. And great will be the day of Jezreel. There's going to be a time when that place of defeat becomes a place of victory. There's going to be a time when that place of poverty and destruction becomes a place of plenty and provision again. In chapter 2, verse 1, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Say to your brothers, my people. Those children that were rejected are going to be restored and called sons and daughters. Those children that were given no mercy are going to be showered and covered by the mercy of, by the mercy of God. And here's something critical, something you have to understand. They broke the law of God, that covenant formed at Sinai. The Mosaic covenant, the law, the old covenant, however you want to determine it, they broke and shattered that covenant. And when God says he will remain faithful, when he will restore them, he does not restore them to the promises of the law. Please note that. When God restores them, he restores them to the Abrahamic covenant promises, and he looks forward to the new covenant promises that he made. What's the difference? The law hinged on their obedience. Those other two covenants do not. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, those rest entirely on God's faithfulness. That's a key point in reading through the Minor Prophets. That's the book in a chapter and a verse. There's some difficult pictures there. One of the most difficult pictures in all of the Bible, one of the most graphic, heartbreaking pictures in all of the Bible, a marriage broken by adultery and unfaithfulness. And that is easy to process as long as we keep it at arm's length. As long as we look at Israel and say, oh foolish Israel, how could you do that? You had every reason to know, you had every opportunity to obey, and still you turned aside over and over and over. You saw what God was like, you saw what God could do, and still you chose the useless idols of all the nations. How could you? It is much less comfortable when we think of idolatry in our own lives. Because you and I have every evidence of what God is like and what God has done. You and I have every evidence of God's faithfulness. You and I have seen God provide the very sun to cover our sins and to cleanse us and to promise us an eternal inheritance with him. And yet how often do you and I put something other than God at the forefront of our lives? And at the same time, how often do you and I need to be reminded that God is gracious? That although we continually falter and fail and sin, that as often as we come to him in repentance, he stands ready to forgive and restore. Just two things for us to think about as we go today. First of all, we're a people who need to make sure that we're okay identifying idols. Because most of us don't have statues on our mantles. Seeing idolatry compared to adultery is really uncomfortable, and it should be, because we don't like to think of our sin that way. I want my sin to be small, manageable, and easy to justify. Can't do that with something as vile and graphic as adultery. 
So how do we identify those things in our life that are that offensive, that really are spiritual adultery and idolatry? Here's some ways that we identify the idols in our own life. Where do we spend our time? I have to work this many hours, granted. I have to sleep this many hours, not if you have kids. Where do you spend your time? And where is your heart during that time? Because you can work to the glory of God. You and I both know that you can see work as a mission, or you can see work as the means to providing for your wants. Another way to identify idols. What causes you to produce the fruit of the flesh rather than the fruit of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What takes those things from you? What makes you angry? What breaks your peace? What makes you anxious? What makes you not gentle? What robs you of your self-control? Whatever it is in that moment is more important to you than God is. That's an uncomfortable reality. Helpful way to identify what the idol is in the moment. Second thing, we better be very careful that we don't have a God who is God on our terms. But one of the most difficult applications and thoughts in the book of Hosea is the calling of Hosea in general. Because God makes no excuses for calling him to a task that is difficult, more than difficult, that is heartbreaking. And one of the things that I've heard at several points in counseling, and if I'm not careful, one of the thoughts of my own heart that comes around quite often is God would never ask me to fill in the blank. God would never ask me to do something that is uncomfortable. God would never ask me to do something painful. God would never ask me to do something that he knows would hurt. The reality is that God does not ultimately seek our happiness or our comfort. You have to understand he loves us more than that. God calls us so that we might be like him. Because in being like him, there is blessing, which is better than happiness. There is joy that is better than happiness. There is holiness that is better than comfort. And God will frequently call us to difficult, unimaginably, unthinkably difficult things to do that. There are times when obedience is hard. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And that was written to people who would be killed for their faith. Preach the gospel knowing that it will set you at odds with the culture. When God calls a prophet like Jeremiah and says, you're going to spend the rest of your life preaching faithfully, and by the way, not one person is going to listen. No one. He calls us to forgive to restore, to reconcile in situations where it makes no sense. Why? Because that is what he has done for us. He calls us to be patient and kind, not because people deserve it, not because it's fair, but because he's changed our hearts and because our goal is different. Our goal is to be like him. You and I need to be very, very careful that when we're looking to what obedience looks like, we're not looking to obey a God that we've created in our own image. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard book. A hard book with hard themes.
difficult and heartbreaking themes. Lord, I pray that we would see our own sin in that same way. I pray that our own sin would break our heart, that our sin would bring us to our knees, that we would stop trying to justify, excuse, blame other people, that we would repent, and that we would find the sweetness of your mercy, your mercy that restores sinners, your mercy that covers the sins of your people, your mercy that reconciles us to you. What a beautiful reality that the God of creation would save sinners like us. God, we praise you in light of that in Christ's name. Amen.